the human person on his own can make the, the first move and God will meet them halfway. It was called semi-Pelagianism. Or not even um, halfway, or, like 99 yards. 99, yeah, yeah. yeah well, now we, and now we just call that Methodism. So. <laughs> right, now we just call it. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Matt, you are back on the ground, Sunday school, all that stuff is starting up for you guys. How's that been? It's it's like... Uh... It's, 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 you know, I forgot how much I worked. There's <laughs> a lot of stuff. And man, I mean, it's, I don't know if you guys have assistants where you are, but, but if you can get an assistant, um, if you, if you get to the point where you can hire an assistant, it's like, it's like, it's golden. I mean, because the, my assistants, I was gone for three months, basically. I was in and out, but uh, my assistants did. You like, mean like a, like a pastoral, like a, yeah, like a clergy yeah. assistant yeah. or like a. One of my assistants is, is, is deacon. The other one is, not day. My, one of my, <laughs> is in, a, in process, but man, yeah. Get these people. And, and well, can, I need, I'm you, looking you for like, one. Yeah. If anyone out there, if any, if our listener happens to also be ordained, <laughs> <laughs> then please uh, send in your resume to me. It's a wonderful place to live. Hilton Head. Um, and we're we're active actively looking for a for an associate as we and speak. If you get an assistant, JD, you can like just take off. Like you just say, "Hey, I'm going to be gone. I've got this important thing to do for like two weeks." All I do is pray and head off anyway. So I'm like, <laughs> no, I do. Uh, you know, well, I'm glad I heard y'all talk about that on your podcast. Um, it was fun to listen to, but um, no, I heard you said that they handled it great when you were yeah, gone. So it's amazing. Usually, I come yeah, back I'm surprised and some fires. But yeah, I was there are no fires. They wanted you back. I mean, that was no, that too. I, I mean, I guess, I guess it's a pleasant surprise. <laughs> I mean, we we actually grew over the summer. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> we, we we gained like several families. So maybe that's the. Did secret. they start yeah. preaching like seven minute homilies? <laughs> <laughs> you want you, like this guy? <laughs> you want your associates like you want your supply clergy? Really good, but just not quite as good as you. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I think it's, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really looking, I I was spoiled with you, Nick, having such a good preacher. Um, and, and Ted Duvall, who I worked for recently, was a, is a great preacher too. So that's my sort of number one criteria is not have to be subjected to yeah. uh, bad preaching. Um, I mean, just, just I mean, for the practical sake, that's high calling, but also just, just personally speaking, it's like, I don't want to have to preach every Sunday, um, but I will if, if, if that's the only alternative is to be um, harangued or, uh, <laughs> or, or, you know, some sort of what, like platitudinous sermonizing that can't handle it. So, Well, indeed. So all you good preachers among our listeners, go ahead and send right. your send your resumes to JD. And you won't be you won't be you won't be disqualified for showing such pride uh, in your own uh, sounds like Sounds like he's actually gonna give you a chance to preach, which is great. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. That's right. Today we're gonna dip into the mailbag and answer some listener questions. We've picked out three emails uh, because we're naively thinking that we won't get to our normal 45 minutes or so and be about halfway through the first one, which is kind of what I expect to happen. But we'll we'll see what happens today. We have questions about um, relating to uh, well-read Catholic family members. Somebody wants to know why the three of us aren't Eastern Orthodox. 
and another one about recognizing encroaching wokeness in preaching and teaching. As always, we'll do our best and see how far we get. So first question comes from a young listener. It's a longer email. I'll try to boil it down for you guys. This person has an older family member who recently converted to Roman Catholicism and is now constantly bringing up how the Catholic Church is the true church and how wrong and revisionist Protestantism is for a whole host of reasons, mostly seeming to stem from the fact that Catholicism is older, more original in that sense, and the assertion that Protestantism is a more modern or scientific answer-driven system that refuses to just accept the mysteries of the faith, and that its departures from Catholicism are departures from true Christianity. And this listener is looking for some encouragement in his own faith and in dealing with this family member. What do you guys have for him? I mean, I, I, was, I was reading that letter over again this morning or this afternoon. I, I, um, I think, you know, probably he's, it sounds like he's already adopted some of the presuppositions that Rome would want you to adopt before your conversion and, and which I would want to challenge the, the very, the, the very beginning. So one of those is that the Roman Catholic church is the church mm-hmm. that the apostles founded and that the Protestant church, the Protestants, you know, broke off from the Roman Catholic church. We would, of course, as Anglicans and as, as I think, most Protestant churches that, that come from the magisterial reformers would want to argue, no, we're, we're, Roman, we're, we're not Roman Catholic, but we are Catholic. And, and Roman Catholicism has departed from the Catholic faith. And the way that the Roman apologists usually try to persuade you otherwise is, is to project backwards into history their modern dogma. Um, but when you go back and you study the fathers, it's not such a cut and dry thing. I mean, it's it's interesting that just the way that Rome understands the magisterium, the, the present teaching authority, they do not receive as authoritative tradition any writings from the fathers that contradict the present day magisterium. So, so when a Roman Catholic tells you that we are in line with the historic teachings of the church and there's never been any real deviation from what we teach now all the way back to the apostles and look you this father and that father and this father this father agreed with us on justification and on with us with regard to the bible well they're what they're doing is they're taking they're taking the mag, the present day magisterial <clears throat> teachings as these things and and using that as the measure of the fathers and those fathers who say things that resemble the the modern roman catholic doctrine they'll say oh this is tradition and if you point out, okay, well, well, wait a minute, what about this quote here by Augustine? Or what about this quote here by Irenaeus? Or what about this quote here by, by Hillary or, or Ambrose or whatever? What they'll say is, well, that's not part of the tradition. So, so, so they, of course, they have the quote unquote historic faith when they define the historic faith by their present day magisterium. When you actually study the, the, the fathers, what you find is there's a much more mixed bag. I mean, sometimes sometimes they'll say things that sound very, very much consistent with what Rome might say about you know faith and works, but other times you'll find them saying something very consistent with justification by faith alone. Uh, sometimes you'll hear them saying things about the sacraments that sound very much like the Aristotelian or Aquinas, Aquinas Thomas Aquinas's taking Aristotelian logic and creating the doctrine of transubstantiation. You, you'll, you'll read some things back in the 400s that maybe sound like that, but that's not necessarily what they were actually that's saying right. back then. <laughs> I mean, that's when, right. when uh, so with the way they talked about the sacraments, even 
um, was informed much more by Platonic thought than Aristotelian thought. So you can't just go back and and um, assume that when a father says that he's eating and drinking the blood, body and blood of Jesus, that he means transubstantiation. He may mean something very much like what Anglicans mean or what or Presbyterians mean. So it's just a, the, the, pres, the, the fathers are all over the place. And a lot of that is because they did not face the same questions that we faced. Right. So there was not there was not a controversy in the fifth you know, century over justification by faith alone. That, that they weren't arguing about that, so there was no reason right. to define it carefully. It, that that argument didn't come up until you know the fifteen hundreds. So so or maybe earlier. Well, until they got until until the Bible got you know until the Bible got yeah. put back into the center of the question of authority. I mean that's what right. you know my my main problem with the Roman Catholic Church. I mean obviously theologically we had some disagreements with them, but it's the it's the presumption of authority that it claims unto itself. It's really the you know, the big break with at the time of the Reformation was that, you know, even Henry VIII's fight with the Pope was over whether or not the Pope was more powerful than what the Bible said regarding divorce and remarriage. You know, I mean, part of the question was, you know, the Pope said, oh, it's all right, you'll be fine. And he kept having these, you know, either daughter or stillborn babies. And he said, well, maybe actually the Pope doesn't have as much authority as, as maybe I'm out of line with the scriptures. And this was part of what, what prompted the entire exegetical treatment of the the king's great matter as it was called but i think you know you're exactly right matt that the the questions um you know the the church fathers as 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 grateful as we are to them for carrying the faith along um can be marshaled in defense uh, depending on what the the how the terms are defined um for you know for for just about any denomination or any um sect for that matter if you wanted to i mean you know you don't see a lot of jehovah's witnesses quoting augustine and Tertullian, but nevertheless, um, I mean, I'm sure they could find something in there to point towards whatever they wanted to make an argument for, which doesn't mean that they're not useful, but it does mean that the actual terminology and the definitions are are of paramount importance. And I know this for a f- firsthand because part of my the impetus for me doing a um, doctorate was in part because of being spurred on by the question that was prompted by the what was called the Joint Declaration on Justification. Because I was in, I was in a New Testament religious studies class at, uh, at Washington Lee in October of 1999, when on uh, Reformation Day, the uh, members of the representatives from the Vatican and representatives from the Lutheran World Federation of Churches signed this document. And I'll never forget Professor Brown, um, who was wonderful, very devout Roman Catholic scholar. Have I told you this story before? I did. Yeah, but it's a good one. <laughs> well, but I forget. And anyway, long story short, she said, anyone in here Protestant, raise your hand. Anyone here Catholic? And she said, you'll be happy to know there's no reason for you to disagree about justification yeah. um, here on out. Until and, you actually read the document. <laughs> well, yeah. And so I, um, but no, I think the, you know, the question, the, the, the difficulty with respect to these conversations is that you know, there's there seems to be uh, an animus that uh, is often a part of it that is more of a uh, it, it it seems to be almost one sided. I mean, I don't know. I, I I know that there are Protestants out there who vehemently decry the Roman Catholic Church and you know go on the other side of the street if they see a priest and have all of this like really um, anti Catholic vitriol. But I don't personally hold that and i don't really run in circles that do i have people who have sort of principled historical and persistent protests against what they see as an overreach of the magisterium um, into the catholic church but but in my experience with some of these conversations there's been a lot of anger a lot of energy to recent converts to catholicism back against their presbyterian or their baptist or their you know and and it's 
it's, I mean, to answer this guy's question from the letter, you know, that's a difficult position to be in because, you know, you want to just say, listen, you know, let's, I'm, I'm going to lay my weapons down here. You know, there are books written massive amounts on either side of this question for centuries now, and could be that one of us is wrong, but we're going to have to, you know, discuss this like like Christian people, if, if the argument, unless you're telling me I'm not, you know, on one side or the other, in which case we've got a, a totally different um, way of, of interacting. Now, I know that's, you know, even as I say that, I know that there are people who who very much question the salvation of people either in the Catholic Church or out of the Catholic Church, and I think that's a um, I, that's a line I'm not ready to 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 put in the sand. But I think that there can be churches in error, and the people within these churches that are in error that need to be identified and lovingly corrected. You know, i.e. the protest. But yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a as even as I'm talking about it, I I can hear my <laughs> my wheels starting to slow down because I, I think it's a, it's, I do think that they are an error in the central claim of the Bible with respect to how one is justified before God. And so I, you know, that is a very, that's a difficult thing to hold on to if, if you want to stay faithful to the scriptures. It makes sense that that would be held either way, that, that the same questions we would have about the Catholic church, they would have about us and this listener's family member has about him. And it's causing the the reason the email was written was because it's causing this listener to ask those questions. Are the differences enough? Am I outside the bounds of what is salvific Christian faith? I mean, I think, I think he recognizes that. I mean, I'm just with this, this paragraph alone, it's been really difficult because I don't know what I believe anymore. I remember first hearing the good news of Christ's finished work on our behalf and being blown away by the doctrine of justification uh, by faith, um, listening to White Horse Inn and Brian Wolfmiller and you guys, when I hear these historical arguments from my stepdad as others, I doubt it. Things like how the Protestant view of justification is a result of, sci- of a scientific paradigm read over scripture rather than embracing mystery. So he's, he's concerned about his about the ground of his salvation or of his justification. That's a huge thing. I don't, I mean, I, I, I definitely believe there are people within the Roman Catholic church who are, who are justified and, and trusting in Jesus, of course, and Calvin, Luther, all of them believe that. But the question is, can the doctrine of the Roman Catholic church itself lead one if one embraces it fully to justification? And the reformer said, no, that, that was part of the problem. Is it that was not part of them? That was the <laughs> that was the the hinge upon which the, the the Reformation turned. Is if you are trusting in anything else besides the very the work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the the, the Christ Christ person, then you're lost. You you can't. There's if if it's Christ and you, Christ infusing you with some righteousness, so you can kind of do some things too. And then on the basis of the things you do through the through the grace of God, then that's what your justification is. You're lost because you're not going to be able to co- you're not going to be able to cooperate with that. And God's a holy God, and He demands perfect righteousness, and you don't have it. No matter how much you cooperate with grace, you don't have enough cooperation to do it. That's you're right. going to fail, and you're going to go to hell. So at the end of the day, that's the division, and it's still pretty wide in my view. I, I, I think it is. Um, he yeah. mentions this question of scientific paradigm right over scripture with regard to the just, doctrine of justification. Well, the reality is, we can take Augustine, for example. I mean, Augustine's one of those guys who said, who seems to say sometimes, well, you know, God gives you grace, and then through the grace, you do good works, and the, and the good works that you do by God's grace, that's what justifies you. But on other occasions, he seems to say, well, no, it's, it's justification by faith, by, by faith alone. And of course, the problem is, if the, is that 
is that Augustine didn't read Greek. So he didn't know what the word for justification in Greek, which is dikeo verb form, he did not know what that meant. And that was a very forensic for, forensic term. And it is a very forensic term in Greek. So when Paul's talking about justification, yeah. he's talking about law court. Like what on what basis does God declare one righteous? And when God declares someone righteous in a law court, it's not a, it's not a discussion of your inner being being changed or transformed. It's, it's, a, it's a question of status, like where, how you stand before the judge. Augustine didn't get any of that. And so he his whole doctrine of justification had to do with he says his thinking about justification had to do with the Latin understanding of that term, which is which is kind of an internal thing. So, yeah, of course, the Western church was confused about this and it had all kinds of ideas floating around until the Reformation. And then what happened to the Reformation? And I think you mentioned this earlier, J.D., is people had to go back and, and look at the scriptures. right? Because the fathers were not definitive on this question, and even if they were, it wouldn't be the final word. But especially since they weren't definitive on this question, the final word it is and always has to be what the scriptures say. That's right. So it and it's interesting matter. enough that all of the reformers uh, were arguing, you know, various shades of Augustinianism. Yeah. Um, you know, Ashley Knoll writes in his book that, you know, the, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, for that matter, could really have been argued as a debate over who interpreted Augustine rightly. You know, and then Stephen Paulson has an article called The Augustinian Imperfection, uh, which is, he, he brings up exactly that point of yours, Matt, that there was a, for as much as we can be grateful to Augustine for, there was a, there was a, a lack of clarity at this one point that was finally clarified at the time of the Reformation. So I think, you know, the Reformation can rightly be understood as simply a reordering of the locus of authority within the church. And, you know, it had become the, the Roman medieval Roman Catholic Church had begun to uh, accrue to itself um, unbiblical amounts of authority and, you know, sort of theological propositions that were not scripturally warranted or defensible. And it was clarified. It was clarified back through the lens of Scripture. And, of course, you know, wonderful books like Galatians um, and Romans, you know, played heavily in that, because particularly in Galatia, we saw what, what Luther and others saw as some of the overreach of the uh, Roman Catholic Church laid over against what the Judaizers were doing to the Galatian Church with respect to circumcision. And so you, have, you had this uh, providential unleashing of the Word of God um, to the world, which which righted and, and corrected and reestablished itself as the authority. And so I was actually talking to someone about this this morning because there was that we were referencing all the various denominations. And, you know, I think we talked about this last week. That I think we're going through another reformation of sorts where things are being clarified on one side or the other. And, on you know, and hopefully we'll live through it, or at least we're, we're in the middle of it, where churches that, that, that look to the scriptures as their sole source of authority um, or the foundation of their authority, the, the Normans, norm, norms, normata, or whatever, you know, the Latin phrase, the, that which cannot be normed except for itself. At any rate, on the other side of this, we're going to have incredible unity, just like we have now, um, amongst these supposedly fractured churches, because no one has ever unchurched or undechristianed a Baptist or a, or very few people or a um, Presbyterian or an Anglican because of their church polity when they are um, committed to the authority of Scripture and and preaching what um, we understand to be the gospel, you know, not, not the other gospels, if there was one, but the gospel. And so I, um, you know, I think that it's a difficult position from a family systems dynamic to be in a constant tension and argument with your father, I mean, your stepfather, I mean, there's no question about that. But I think that 
the confidence that one gathers in um, trusting in Jesus comes from listening to his word. You know, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus, you know, um, uh, just to take him at his word. Well, I mean, open back up the book of Romans, open back up Galatians, you know, listen again to the, the great preacher of conversion and faith alone, you know, sing to you from, from scripture itself. And this was, you know, so many Protestant martyrs went to their deaths um, with that confident uh, hope, not because it was wrought in them because of some sort of meritorious act of the church, but because they had come to a deep, sincere and abiding belief that the Bible was in fact true. And so if you just read, sit down and read the Bible again, or have it read to you, or then you will come away from that as uh, with what is Romans 10, 7, you know, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, this is what we, we, we trust. And in, in, in anyway, I mean, I think I do, I do feel for that, um, for this person who wrote us the letter, and I hope that um, he will keep us in his ear, keep the gospel in his ear, as, at least as much as his stepfather's voice uh, to the contrary. Well, let's move on to our second email. I've related um, anybody who listened to our conversation these last 20 minutes or so will know why we're not Catholic. Um, much like this emailer, this listener who listened, I think, to our Michael Nazar Ali episode when he left the Anglican Church for the Roman Catholic Church. We were very clear in that episode, and he got the message why we're not Catholic. He wondered why we're not Eastern Orthodox. So why aren't you? I would sooner go to the Roman Catholic Church than the Eastern Orthodox Church. <laughs> I mean, even though you write for Hank Hanegraaff's magazine, I, I know, I know, I and know. I love Hank Hanegraaff. But I mean, and he's a great guy. I really do appreciate and respect and honor him, but. Um, I wish he hadn't gone to the Eastern Orthodox Church, but he has. Um, nevertheless, my disagreement with the Roman Eastern Orthodox Church is probably more severe than that with uh, with Roman. And the reason is that it boils down to anthropology. The, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church seems to help hold out more hope for the human person un unaided by grace. John Cassian was a theologian who was writing sometime after the church condemned Pelagianism. And he, uh, he along with others, uh, formulated a, a kind of a midway doctrine between Augustinianism and Pelagianism with regard to grace. Now, Pelagius taught that uh, you don't need any grace at all, uh, special grace at all, in order to do what God says to do. You can be obedient and do good, and you can actually earn your entry into the eternal life uh, unaided at all, just by the just by naturally following the example of Jesus. That was condemned by the church, and Augustine uh, wrote several a lot of stuff against that. But there was a middle way that was proposed later, and John Cassian was one of the people who proposed it that the, the human person can make the first move toward faith. It has to be aided then, and 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 grace has to come alongside that first move and help a person come to real faith and to continue to live out the Christian life. But the human person on his own can make the, the first move and God will meet them halfway. It was called semi-Pelagianism. Or not even um, halfway, or, like 99 yards. 99, yeah. yeah. yeah well, now we, and now we just call that Methodism. So. <laughs> right, now we just call it. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> Eastern Orthodoxy adopts that anthropology. I mean, the, 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 the human person is not quite so fallen and not quite so depraved and can by his own power uh, reach out toward god if he cannot be just it's true that under eastern orthodoxy you can't be saved or uh, i guess these are all western kind of terms but you can't be 
Um, you you won't go to, you won't gain real eternal life on your own ever. You've got to have God helping you. But but there's some there's a, there's an island I think R.C. Sproul described as an island of righteousness left over after the fall. And I would say that that way leads to hell because again, you're try- who are you trusting in? Where does your trust lie? Where does your faith lie? And within within Eastern Orthodoxy, and, and again, I'm not saying there aren't real believers who are justified, and I, I'm, sure, I'm sure my brother Hank Inagraf is one of them. But but as but the doctrine itself leads you to trust in your cooperative power rather than in the grace of God. And I think that's a terrible error. There's another thing, another problem. Jesus laws call that the perichoresis, right? I mean, that's the the divine dance. dance. uh, Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think it's unsurprising, given the foundations that you're you're describing, that they have a very different understanding of atonement uh, than the quote-unquote Western churches. You know, that's been historically one of my biggest objections to it, is that there is essentially no concept of certainly not the penal substitutionary atonement, if, if, if substitutionary atonement at all. Um, and so the death of Christ takes on a, a much different uh, role or a much different um, image in the Eastern Orthodox than it does in, in the Western church. You know, and that, that would be, you know, and, that, and their apologists uh, will, will argue that. I mean, I had a Christian or a former parish of mine that was very much um, enamored by the Eastern Orthodox and could hardly say the word John Calvin without spitting because he so blamed um, the Western Protestants to uh, for all of this terrible quote unquote nonsense about substitutionary atonement, you know, limited atonement, all all this, all of the all of the things, and so I think that you know that goes hand in glove right there, though, because if you have a residual aspect of righteousness from which you can draw, well, then the death of Christ takes on um, not a, a substitutionary atoning aspect, but a exemplary aspect, you know, or it's sort of in the various models of the atonement, but certainly not what we'd understand or has come down to us uh, from our Western understanding of atonement in in any sort of, I think, more profound and meaningful way. And so that's um, that's exactly in line in keeping with a, an anthropology that you're describing, Matt, uh, that's been given to us um, in, in the East. And again, I would make all these qualifications, just like the Roman Catholics, to say that there are people within every denomination, however, uh, you know, wrong or, or misguided some of its theology is that are that are true believers, and we're grateful for it. It's just that we're we're also called to to test everything up against uh, the scriptures. And to the extent that some of these um, denominations are found wanting, is is a place of concern, and and that's what we're we're discussing now. Right. The the another very big difference, I guess, is the is the uh, Eastern Orthodox understanding of justification. Or I, I mean, you, they, I don't know if they would use they would not use the word justification like I'm using it, but their understanding of, of being bound and, and united to God as something as the result of a process they call deification, which is where That's right. you're not you're not actually made God, but you're you're you're, you're um, drawn up might, into Him. Drawn up into Him. We might liken it a little bit to sanctification in, in, a, in a Western sense of the word, but 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 right. But the but the error there, like Rome, is that is that your eternal life hinges on the result of that deification process, whereas we would say that. The deification process, whatever, however you, however, whatever term you want to use, sanctification process, is is the aftermath of of the already settled matter of your of your eternal right. life uh, because of, by by faith through the work and. They also Christ. argue. 
They also argue, at least in the, the Finnish Orthodox that I studied as part of my doctorate, they, they argue that this is an ontological change that one undergoes. So you legitimately become like a, a changed being, you know, that it's uh, not not the, that the perishable will die and the imperishable will be ri- raised, you know, upon the final final judgment, but that there's a sort of a, you know, the analogy would be that you were, you were like a glass of, of dirty water that was slowly being cleaned, you know, and right. so the problem with that, as I pointed out, is that the, if it were true, which I, I mean, if, if that would be wonderful, if like the older you got and the longer you, the more you took communion and the longer you prayed, somehow you grew like a physical baby, like a child into an adult, so much so that you were unable to fall back. That would be wonderful. You know, like what 80 year old doesn't wish that they could be 20 again? You know, uh, I mean, that would be, but you just can't. And so spiritually, if there was analogous, that if by the time you were 80 and you had undergone this ontological spiritual transformation, ontological transformation, then just as an 80-year-old could not go back to a 20-year-old, so could an 80-year-old now ontologically changed Christian not go back to a, a weaker, sort of lesser version of themselves. And yet we will know and we have seen that it happens. And it not only happens, uh, it, it doesn't happen just infrequently, it happens or, or it's the capability of it is 100% true to each and every Christian, you know, you have, and the way we see this, and we, we saw that we learned about this in seminary and now I've seen enough to happen is, you know, particularly when Christians, sweet, sanctified, faithful, long-serving Christians lose control of, of their minds, you know, towards the end of their lives, via Alzheimer's or dementia or something. And all of a sudden you see the capabilities that by the grace of God, they had been suppressing their, their entire lives. It's oftentimes they lose some of the ability to, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, you know, and they begin to say things or reference things or talk in ways that are, that are, that are horrific, uh, which would make no sense if you had this idea that somehow, you know, 85-year-old sweet church lady who never heard a fly was somehow saved by anything other than the grace of God in Christ. Because if you thought it was because she was getting better, she was becoming more holy, she was being infused with grace, all these things that are part of these other systems— well, then you would have no way to explain that now she's evincing, we should say, um, non-Christian vocabulary at the very least, mm-hmm. um, other than, well, as always, like me, like her, like any Christian, we have the capability, uh, this side of heaven, for sin. You know, we are um, passe pecare, as Augustine would say, you know, sin, possible sinners uh, sin, but someday will be non-passe, non-bacare, not able to, uh, I mean, non-passe, bacare, not able to sin. But right now we are both. We are simul used to set peccator. Let's just keep going all of the various <laughs> forms of peccator. We can get into the. He has but, a so that's where, just yeah. in case just, you didn't just, know. Just Latin, no, not Greek. Latin, not <laughs> that's Greek. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, but we, um, but see, that's, and again, that goes back to the big fight with Rome at the uh, time of the Reformation was over this idea Luther um, had of simul justus epicator, that you could be simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time, because it had to be a, it had to be on an inverse proportion for Roman Catholics, you know, it had to be, or, or even for Eastern Orthodox, it sounds like not. But for us, we say it is equally true. We are 100% justified and 100% sinners in need of justification, simul justus epicator at the same time until we are raised in glory. And and, and that's why, you know, the preaching and teaching of the church is so repetitious in our tradition, purposely so, because we have to be reminded of this and cleansed of this and reset from this um, every week, every day, every hour, as I say. And so, you know, I think that's where, among many, but that's where the, one of the main weaknesses of the Orthodox Church lies. 
I can't help but call out your nefarious leaving out of the quality of the parish festivals in the Eastern Orthodox Church, which should should not be should not be hidden because they're awesome. It's beautiful. I mean, okay, it is beautiful. The parish festival. I mean, I, I attended several Eastern Orthodox services in my life, and every time I came away, they're really long. But <laughs> and sometimes in other languages, All right? right. So, I mean, so you'll walk in like the service lasts like three hours, and people just kind of walk in at some point. That's not that's even that's not very long. We we went to uh, didn't you go to that Coptic service with us in Ambridge Nick? It was like I never actually went nine, ended at six. Yeah. Well, people would come and go. I knew myself like, too well. To come back. <laughs> but it's it's it is I can I can I it is beautiful. All the things negative we said, I can I can definitely understand the draw. I can understand the attraction because it's a beautiful. Beautiful liturgy. Well, in my prayer, my... Just, just I think I think Protestantism, some strands of Protestantism, have so demystified and unenchanted and and eviscerated the beauty of worship that Orthodoxy is just like this attractive thing. Like that thing on Twitter <laughs> well, I've been seeing today about the coronation. Everyone's like, "It's the 21st century. What the why heck are, are we, we doing?" doing it's like, Wait, no, that's why we're doing this. This is something bigger than you. Right. <laughs> I know, but it turns out that um, there's a guy that uh, Gene Roddenberry was right that in the future uh, everyone's just going to wear different colored jumpsuits. That's what they wanted. <laughs> it was like, oh, there's the king. How do you know? He's got a silver jumpsuit on. <laughs> I I do think oh, my prayer honestly is that um that the Lord will reunify the churches, not around denominations necessarily, but around theology, around the Bible, and that we'll see people from Roman Catholics bring what's still good within that church, you know, some of the the sophistication and some of the beauty and some of the, the intellectual rigor, that they'll be reformed, you know, in, in but not lose some of the, the aspects of it, just like in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I think some of the, some of the beauty, like, I, I never forget, I went to a Russian Orthodox Church in Vienna uh, for like the night of churches or something. I forget what the reason, but um, it had just recently been redone because the Russians had just come into a bunch of oil money or something. And so it had like this solid gold um, dome put on it, you know, by some um, oligarch who was trying to atone for his sins, you know, one of matches. And the very least, so one of the coolest things that you walk in and it's like walking in, there's a couple of little chairs on the side. I don't know if this is standard. I've only been in one Orthodox church other than this, but they were like, nobody sits in the presence of the Lord, you know, no one, everyone stands. And I was like, you know, you can kneel or you can stand. And I was like, now that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I enjoy things like that, you know, and so it's aspects of the church are quite beautiful. And I think when you get a Bible into people, people's hands and or into their ears and they begin to to let that sift things out well then you can keep all of all of this stuff that you want that's beautiful and reverent and true and uh reorient yourself around the the shed blood of god of jesus for sinners the christ has been what romans 4 25 crucified for our sins and raised for our justification and then we'll we'll you know can have a conversation about whether or not gold-plated domes are better than you know uh, coffee shops to have a church and things like that uh which I, i'm i don't know if we're gonna live to see that but i think that's the trajectory that's the the arc of history that's being bent towards church reunification he has that's to right. put the post mill stuff in i know every time, every ready time. for the turnkey like, like trying to get right. <laughs> uh, well look one of us is going to be wrong okay so we'll just see um Let's take the last couple minutes. This is a question that could, of course, fill out a whole episode or even series of episodes. So I want to try to narrow it down or maybe 
make it a little bit more specific even than the questioner asked. We had somebody want to know how to discern the beginnings of wokeness in preaching and teaching in a church that they might be attending. I want to ask you guys, since this is obviously something that we've talked about a ton, how do we think about the line between um, submitting oneself to the teaching of a church, listening uh, charitably to a human being who is trying to interpret the scriptures and being aware of problematic things that can come into a church? How, how does a congregant try to live into those th- three things all happening at once? I, mean, I think it's super important for the congregant to be uh, himself or herself a student of scripture. I mean, this is like a basic answer, but but a student of scripture. So if I remember the question correctly, I read it. It was, you know, how do I know when, when my pastor is like sneaking some kind of woke ideology into the, into the, his exegesis of the text when I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you need a PhD for that. I think I think you need to. I think you need. If you know the scriptures well enough, you'll know when someone's importing an ideology form to the text into the text. So you know, if you if you find that your pastor is regularly um, taking texts, for example, that are about salvation or justification and making them about social liberation, that's a that's a key. That, that's one of the key things that happens very often is. The, the text that's about maybe healing, maybe it's about feeding the 5,000, maybe it's about uh, someone coming to, to Jesus to be forgiven of their sins. And all of that is kind of flattened out into ultimately the application being social justice. It, 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 this is about uh, the outcast. This is about us as the church being the hands and feet of Jesus and, and, and helping him do his work because, you know, he, he's obviously incompetent. And so, and so the, they wouldn't say that, but that's, that's how, that's, that's how woke wokeness works itself in. It takes the, uh, the relief and the rest that you should get when you hear Jesus uh, healing someone and you could think, wow, he's, he can heal me too. When you see Jesus forgiving someone, you say he can forgive me too. It takes the the rest out of that, and and, and it begins and it shifts the narrative to, and now you, you need to be, be the one providing rest and salvation and liberation <clears throat> to others. And if you're not doing that, you're not really a Christian. You're not you're not doing the gospel. You're not doing the gospel. That's another key. So notice when someone begins to talk about the gospel as something that's done. Like, I'm not out. done past tense by something you do. Like you, you need to be doing this to be doing the gospel. Now, the gospel is not something you do. The gospel is about what Jesus has already done and finished and completed. And anytime anyone uses the word gospel and attaches it to your work, especially if it's attached to the to a text, you know that's eisegesis. You know that person's importing some foreign ideology into the Bible. And you should never hesitate to ask your preacher, "What did you mean by that?" I don't think I would be offended by that. I think I would mm-hmm. I would wish that I had been clearer and and want somebody to know what I meant. Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right, uh, both of y'all. And I would go further on your point, Matt, and say that you know not simply are they turning the back on you, but they're leaving you in your sins. I mean, that's the thing. If they're if they're if they're turning the gospel into something of a of some sort of prod or some sort of spur on to good works, well, then they're not preaching the gospel in the right way. I mean, the question should be, as Paul even knows in Romans, the interlocutor would bring up, and in Galatians, why then the law? Like, why then? You know, what? well, if I'm just saved, well, then that seems too good to be true. And you're like, well, you're on the right track. 
you're on the right track there with this. You know, like you mean I can actually be freed from those things I've done, those things I've left undone. And the answer is yes. And, you know, oftentimes in these uh, more progressive churches, uh, as much as they talk about inclusivity and tolerance and there's some supposedly the, the the kinder, gentler church. It's actually much more legalistic in practice than than your sort of basic Bible believing, simple gospel preaching church. You know, I mean, it's it's um, and I think that's where you have to begin to to wonder, uh, you know, if I were sitting in the pews and every week I said, well, gosh, you know, I'm, here's another sermon where, like you said, Jesus is an example. And I've been told that the gospel is for me to um you know, decry my privilege and my, um, uh, you know, and, and look at how good I have it and, and go do something good for those less fortunate. I mean, that's, that's, there's a place for that conversation, but that's not uh, in the preaching and uh, ministry function of a Christian church. And I think that confusion has, was always sort of under the surface in, we would say the mainline church, you know, there was a lot of people united because they were thought, well, you know, I might as well give my money to the church instead of the junior league, you know, but really kind of see the rotary club as the same idea as the vestry. And um, that has come to reach its pitch now in the progressive church, which is essentially a social action movement for kind of progressive ideology. Whereas the simple, you know, uh, Bible believing, um, unsophisticated preaching, which is just, but for the grace of God, go I, uh, will continue to convert. And then with a converted heart with freedom, you know, not out of unbelief, but out of faith, will then use the sacrifice of our hands to, to um, the worship of God in all manner of ways. But that's to confuse the two is the arch heresy, which we see down to, to Galatia, that preachers are supposed to be aware of, and we're supposed to confront head on. Um, each and every week, because, um, you know, there's a very, it's very easy to turn the church into a blunt force instrument when people, you know, tenderhearted people who believe in God or get nervous when preachers start speaking on his behalf in ways that motivate them to action. Um, rightly so, because if that's true, well, then I better get out there and get to work. But the amazing message of God in Christ for us is that he has, it is finished. And that's, um, that's a message that if you're not hearing on a regular basis, then you're probably in the wrong church, if not, maybe just stumbled into a rotary club meeting. <laughs> yeah, I, think it's, I think it's, it's one thing to hear a new interpretation of a text, some, some wisdom into the meaning that you hadn't heard before, but if you're consistently hearing new proclamations from the text, I think that's potentially problematic. You can learn a lot about what the author's, meant the situations into which they were writing all the details around the stuff but the proclamation from the pulpit sunday by sunday should be about the forgiveness of sins in the name of jesus christ you go to church not to hear something new but to be reminded of something true that's right no that was great that's exactly right well, we have come to the end of the time that we normally allot for ourselves for these shows. We do so appreciate you listening and writing in. So if you would like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.